Hey everyone, this is Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven with CPC Podcasts, and you're listening to The Sunday Sermon. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. The New Testament reading is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 1 to 31. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? 
and here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Great to see you all in our decorated sanctuary. Thanks for all those who came out yesterday to get ready for, for Christmas. I'm Pastor Craig. I'd love to get to meet you if I haven't met you yet. Uh, we'll have lunch after service if you want to hang around. Um, there is a famous story, who knows if it's actually true, but it's a good story, about Napoleon. And uh, Napoleon apparently asked this famous scientist, a guy by the name of Pierre Simon Laplace, after he had published this major work of cosmology and mathematics. Napoleon asked him why he made all of these grand assertions but did not talk at all about God, the creator of it all. And Laplace is apparently said to have responded with, Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. I love that picture. I don't love it. I, I, I appreciate that picture or that story because it gives such a clear description of what I think is our modern world. We act and live and we have set up a whole society to function without God. It seems, at least, it seems that we can go about our day, we can go about our life without having anything to do with God, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like all of this is just a little bit extra? Do we really have to go to all of these great lengths? Doesn't it seem like we could do our week, sleep in on a Sunday, and life would be pretty good? It wouldn't be all that bad. Well, I do think that that is the great sort of temptation, if you will, of the modern world, uh, the great uh, sin that we can live that way, but what if that is precisely backwards? What if God actually is who he says he is, that he knows us even better than we know ourselves, is nearer to us than we are to ourselves, and he wants to turn that whole posture upside down. The whole assumption, presumption, that God is just a luxury, something we can do without, or maybe we will go to, when we're in our most desperate moments, but otherwise, can't we just 
live without him. I mention this because we have in our passage incredible confrontations between Jesus and the religious authorities. He is making, Jesus is, is making such incredible claims here in the temple at again another major festival. He is saying, I am the prophet who you have been expecting, the Christ. Even the very temple itself is embodied in him. And he is confronting them at their most severe needs and truths. And they are not getting it. They are not seeing that they need a kind of Copernican revolution, if you will, in their mindset. That their need for redemption needs to be so much bigger than they realize. I think the, the intensity of the drama here is what I want us to consider as we look at all the ways that we do oppose Jesus. What does that mean for us and how can we fix that? How can we start to relate to him as we ought. Let's pray and we'll jump into the passage. Father, we do praise you that you have gathered us this morning and you do have the grace upon us to show us all the ways we oppose you. We do ask that you would open us, open our hearts and minds, that your spirit would be mighty, that you would, as you have promised, speak to us by your word and that you would be glorified, that you would set us aright, that we could fight all the ways we tend to oppose you, that we would give you the worship and love that you do deserve, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to basically look at, at two main uh, overarching points. One is how we oppose Jesus and then how we ought to relate to him. It's just amazing to me all the different ways that we see in this passage that they found, all these different rationales that they found to oppose him. And so I want to look at that and, and see if we can find some comparisons in our own lives. Uh, we're told once again that it is a feast, a major festival of the Jews, uh, the Feast of Booths, if you will, or Tabernacles. And some of you may even have neighbors who celebrated this a couple months ago. This is the one where they make uh, tents in their yard. A lot of Jews still do that today. They are celebrating God's provision of bringing them out of the promised land, wandering through the wilderness. He provided tabernacles or booths for them to survive. So that's a way that they sort of remember it even to this day. This was one of the three festivals that Leviticus of the Jewish men, if you were devout and able, you were supposed to pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So another very, very big moment in the life of Israel, second only to Passover, and you have his brothers. We don't know a lot about his brothers at this point. They're only mentioned once before in chapter 2 around the wedding at Cana. And maybe, maybe we have this sense that the brothers are kind of disappointed with how the last interaction went. At the end of chapter 6, if you remember, he started off with huge crowds, but then he starts saying crazy things like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and everyone leaves him, except for the 12. And so maybe you have the brothers there 
trying to give him some strategic ideas. Like, this is not how you build a movement. You don't talk about these crazy things to at least a lot of people. Um, and so they're, they're trying to maybe help him. Come on now. Here's another chance. You can go to Jerusalem. We have the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles happening. Um, why don't you come with us and do some more signs publicly, openly, so that people will know that you're the Messiah. Make yourself known to them, right? This is what the Christ is supposed to do. And we are told quite starkly, after they ask him to do that, verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Not even his brothers believed in him. Remember, this is a much, much, much more family-centric culture than ours, right? And so the brothers should have been the, the most sincere, supportive confidants. They should have had his back. They should have at least understood him uh, the best. And apparently they do not. This is a pretty amazing example one of many throughout the New Testament where Jesus' blood family, if you will, really doesn't have any privilege. He says in, another, in the other Gospels, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? Almost discounting their, their relation to him. Who are they but those who do the will of the Father? This is an amazing way to sort of expose family idolatry that none of the brothers, as far as we know in all the New Testament, even after the resurrection, ever used the fact that they were his bro- the brothers of the Lord to say, you should, you should believe me now. They never take advantage of that. They never use that to gain some sort of power or convince someone in an argument. It's all relativized around Jesus. Even Mary, it seems like, is relativized. The most important thing is that she believes in Jesus, not that she is his mother. So they don't even believe in him. And he says, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. He again is is making reference, it seems, to his time being the time where he will come in full open uh, proclamation or revelation that he must face the authorities full on and be put to death. And they, of course, have no idea what he is talking about. The brothers are, in this case, acting like the rest of Israel and like even the world in expecting a worldly messiah. They are, in effect, what we can say now at least, going to say to him, come down from that cross. You don't need to do that. The redemption that we need, it doesn't need to be that severe, does it? Do we really need the death of God in human flesh to redeem us? Seems like... The brothers and and even Israel as a whole had lost sight of their mission. They were supposed to, from the very beginning, from the promise to Abraham, they were supposed to be a blessing 
to all nations, and they don't see the fact that they need a lot more than a worldly Messiah. It seems like, and this is where I want us to consider ourselves in this story, it seems like they were far too much at home in the world. They were far too much at home in the world. Is that where you find yourself? Does it just feel so comfortable that the necessity of a Savior who gives us new creation, who has to go through the suffering of hell and death itself, seems irrelevant, seems extra, seems too much? Is that where we are at? In 1 John, the letter of 1 John, chapter 2, he writes this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. How many times do we find ourselves caught up in these sorts of desires? This sort of of comfort, this sort of vanity. Ask yourself that. Maybe, especially during this season where we use the birth of the Son of God who had no room in the inn. He had to be born in a pig's trough. We use that as an excuse to lean into our vanities, don't we? Our comforts. I should say that this is an example of, we need to read scripture with, with uh, imp- we, need, we need to read scripture uh, intellectually, meaning he said, we, we're told not to love the world, but didn't he just say that the Father loves the world, God loves the world, that he sent his only son? So does God love the world, but we shouldn't love the world? That seems strange. I think he's just using the world in different senses here. So we need to read it with a little bit more of a sophisticated mind. In this case, I think Jesus loves the world so much, the Father loves the world so much that he sees that he wants to save it from itself. Like a parent who sees their child heading for disaster and the depths of their love means that they hate what is happening so much more. Right? The fact that Jesus can weep over Jerusalem, can pity it so much, can come to almost despair over it is because of his love. Sees that we need to not love the world in this sinful, vain, prideful way because that is the very thing that is destroying us. The false sort of comfort. So it seems like one of the ways that we oppose Jesus is we are simply far too much at home in the world. Ask yourself that. Be open to considering that. The second way is all the ways that we seek our own glory. We seek our own glory. Don't worry. Hang in there, guys. It's not all going to be humdrum, judgment, condemnation. But we need to hear it, right? We need to hear it if God is who he says he is. So in verse 18, Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, 
but his who sent me, this is something he said before. And again, just incredible humility. He's not making this up. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. So again, is that us? This, of course, is a wonderful, wonderful challenge to me, to our church, as a community, as as a corporate body. When do we speak on our own authority? God forbid, hopefully we never do that. I'm not going to ever, hopefully, speak on my own authority. One of the graces that I experienced around being ordained was that I had this sense of you are simply being given a tradition to pass along. Don't get innovative. Don't come up with something new, at least in the theology of it. Because we don't want to hear Craig's ideas. I hope you don't come wanting to hear Craig's ideas. You want to come hearing the word of God. And even Jesus himself says he does not speak on his own authority. If Jesus says that, how much more should we? And so we should ask, how often do we just run our mouths about things we have no idea of, no authority on which to speak, right? Feel like we need to speak up for some reason, but have no authority to do so. Why do we do that? Whether it's in speech or in other ways, why do we seek our own glory? And don't get caught up by that word glory, by the way. That seems like one of those Bible words, Christianese words. It's really, it can mean reputation, it can mean identity, it can mean purpose, who gets the credit, who gets the attention, who do you point to, either explicitly or implicitly. That's all that we mean when we say, seek our own glory. Are we insecure about something? Are we afraid that God's glory is not going to be enough, that we're going to get lost in the shuffle, that we're not going to get the attention we deserve? What exactly do we think we deserve in comparison to God? Why do we seek our own glory? He tells us another way that uh, they were seeking their own glory. They were judging by appearances, as he says. I think in verse 20, was it 25? Do not judge by appearances. No, 24 but judge with right judgment. That seems to be an echo of Isaiah 11, which we're going to hear read on on Friday night at our Christmas service. Isaiah 11, this this, uh, prophetic passage about the Messiah, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. This is where I think we can start to see the good news of being freed from seeking our own glory, of being freed from judging by appearances. The good news is that you can now seek real justice. You can now seek God's glory, which will come in the form of righteousness and holiness and justice. Right? You don't have to be so consumed and worried about seeking your own glory so you can be freed to seek the glory of God. 
the glory that will come with justice. So think about where you point. Think about what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen on Monday when you go back to school or work or with your family, taking care of the kids. What purpose, what identity are you being shaped in? Are you seeking? What does your life point to? Jesus is very clear that he does not. The one, remember from Philippians 2, the one who had every right to claim his own authority, to claim glory for himself, not only did not, but gave up his life into a humiliating, humiliating death. That's how wrong it is to seek our own glory. And it's so wrong that Jesus can go on to say, not only do you have your minds on the world, are you too at home in the world, not only do you seek your own glory or judge by appearances caught up in in vanity and pride, Jesus goes on. He says more. He is not not conflict-averse in this passage or anywhere else. And he goes on to say, you do not even keep the law, and you do not even know God. You have closed yourselves off to the Father. How can he possibly say this? What, what does this mean for us? Did you catch when he said that? He says, you don't know the one who has sent me. Again, remember the scene. The scene is Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles, this major feast. The scene is this temple that is the center of their religious and political identity. This is not a little synagogue off in Galilee. This is in Jerusalem at the temple where all of the rabbinical authorities, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they would have been there ready to celebrate, ready to to show their faith, to show all the ways that they follow the law. And into that scene, Jesus says, you do not even know God. In verse 28, it says, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple. That word proclaimed could just as easily be translated, cried out. And when I saw that, you get the sense that Jesus is, is nearly, as much as he can be without sin, frustrated, exasperated. You know me and you know where I come from. He seems to be saying, like, you know I'm from Nazareth. But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. In the middle of their temple, they have the prophet who they had been expecting from Deuteronomy 18, they had who they, we have learned from chapter 2, who actually is the embodiment of the temple, 
saying, I have not come on a court. I'm coming on behalf of the God you claim to believe. And your posture of pride and vanity and desires for this world have not just caused some little misfortune to happen. It has led you to deny the very God you claim to preach. I have not come of my own accord, Jesus says. Why do you still resist me? The intensity of this drama, I think, has to, has to show us what is at stake. That how we relate to Jesus is easily the most important thing in our life. So the ways that we may be opposing Jesus are the things that we have to attack. The ways, the things that we need to not put off for another day. How do you oppose Jesus? Don't read this story and put yourself in the place of Jesus. Read this story and put yourself in the place of the religious authorities. How do you oppose him? We are better off than the religious authorities of the day. We are better off than the Jews of, this, of that day. Why? Because we know the end of the story. We know that even though the cross seems mystifying, he is raised from the dead, he sends the spirit upon the church, we are better off than them. So he can say just as much to us, here I am. This is who I am. Stop finding so many rationales and excuses to oppose me. What more excuses are you going to find? So what is Jesus saying to you? Is there a big way that you have been opposing Jesus? Maybe you need to repent for the first time to finally turn to Jesus and give your life to him. What are you waiting for? He offers you eternal life. Maybe there's other major ways where God has been gnawing at your conscience, but you haven't had the, the courage to face it. Something in your job, something at home. Maybe it's a macro issue, or maybe it is a micro issue. A lot of times it's a small thing. Small habit on your way to work. What shows you watch at night. Sometimes it's little small habits that start to lead us to drift further and further away. There are countless ways, aren't there? That we rationalize opposing Jesus. Well, what would it mean then to relate to Jesus how we are? The first is, is simply what I wrote down as leaving behind our, our self-justification, letting him define us. Instead of us being the ones to put Jesus on trial, let him put us on trial. That's the upside-down posture that the modern world has totally flipped. 
Who are we to think we can put God on trial? What would it mean if God were to put us on trial? Well, Jesus makes a very clear statement in verse 7 when he's talking to his brothers. And he says, it cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why does the world, he claimed, hate him? And it's something he's going to say elsewhere in the gospel. He says, because I testify about it that its works are evil. Its works are evil. Could that be? Could it really be the case that our works apart from Christ are evil? Are you willing to at least entertain that? Or are you so quick in self-justifying that you're not even willing to hear it? This first step is just hearing it. Letting him define us. I get the sense of, of something that is so purely good that it exposes all of our evil to a drastic measure. Almost like a mirror. You guys know those funhouse mirrors where it'll, you'll walk in and like your head is this big or your arm is like way out here. We, we had like a semi-funhouse mirror. I don't think it was supposed to be one, but uh, it was left in the house we moved into. And it like sort of added 10 or 15 pounds to you, and it was right as you were walking out, so you're like ready to face the day, and you're like, oh, that's what I look like. It's a little strange. I get the sense that Jesus is holding up to us the opposite of a funhouse mirror. This is the, the purest mirror. The mirror that actually shows us who we are. Not making us in our own image, but showing us actually who we are called to be in God's image. Remember, our works are evil in the sense that sin is always personal to God. Sin is always personal to God, meaning the things that we do say something about who God is. That if God is the creator and if Jesus is the redeemer, the one who was in there in the beginning, one with God, anything we do to deny him is saying something very serious and stark about who God is. It's letting him define us, not letting these other definitions define us. Maybe you're not that bad. Maybe your need of redemption isn't that serious. We all make mistakes. Humans are pretty good. There are all sorts of ways that we can minimize it. And I get it. It makes sense that we would want to minimize sin. If we have no hope of redemption, then let's not make ourselves out to be worse than we seem to be. But Jesus should be able to free us, liberate us to face reality. Right? So that's the first one, the way that we ought to relate to Jesus. And the second one is simply letting him define himself. Not making God in our image. Put another way, just letting Jesus speak. He says he speaks not on his own authority, but on the authority of the Father, with whom he was eternally. So we should just let Jesus speak. That is a, there's a simplicity to the gospel that is not 
easy. Does that make sense? There's a simplicity of the gospel that is not easy. And sometimes John's gospel, I think, can be read as, as almost like an introductory gospel. It seems so black and white, so, so clear that we can assume we get it. Yeah, of course. Okay, Jesus is the word of God. He is the way, the truth, and the light. I know that. I know what that means. Let me get something a little bit deeper. I need more nuance, more sophistication. And hey, I like to nuance theology as much as the next guy. But there is a much more important and more fundamental aspect of the gospel that says the simple, clear things, that is what we need courage to believe. To let the simple things be the big things is a challenge for us, I think. To simply let Jesus speak as he claims to be is a challenge for us. I think we rightly want to use our mind and our intellect, and there are a lot of important issues that we need to nuance, but there are a lot of important issues the most important ones that we not, need not to. What if Jesus, what he says here, is true? It's that simple. What if he really is the Lord? What if our works are so evil and yet when love comes, he does not say your works are evil Good luck. Peace. He says, your works are evil, and that is precisely why I have come. I have come to face them. I have come to bring your attention to them. I have come, as, as Romans, Romans 3 describes, that the whole world must be held accountable to God. Every mouth must be stopped. We need this whole clearing away to say you have no hope of redemption. Your works are more evil than you're even willing to face. They're more evil than your worst enemy's works are to you. And yet, that is why I have come to redeem you, to show you that your need is deeper than you thought, and to accomplish it. That Jesus as the Savior is more sufficient than we realize. That he is the one who holds our life in his hands. And why would we want it any other way? It is amazing. Amazingly good and gracious that he is willing to come and say these things to us. To say that your works are evil. To say that you have spent your whole life defending and justifying yourself, trying to uphold the law, and you have missed it. That your best efforts will miss it apart from me. It is amazingly gracious that he's willing to say that. And of course it is amazingly more gracious to not just tell us, but to take it on himself and give us eternal life. That's what happens when God comes. The glory of God in grace and truth, that's what we have in Jesus. Let's let him speak. Amen? Amen. Let's prepare to come to the table.
Thanks for listening to the Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to subscribe to CPC Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. If you liked this show, consider a five-star rating, share it with your friends, or write to us at podcast at cpcnewhaven.org.